Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's lectures by the historical group. We're really privileged tonight. Tony Blackman is going to talk about the flight development of the Vulcan, making it work. Tony Blackman will be speaking. He took an honours physics degree at Cambridge, then joined the Air Force as a pilot and test pilot. After the Air Force, he joined A.V. Rowe as test pilot and then chief test pilot on the Vulcan 1 and 2 and the HS-748 um, and Andover. After Avro's, Tony joined Smith Industries Aerospace Board as an expert on aviation electronics. Initially, as technical operations director, he helped develop large electronic displays and the flight management systems. After Smith Industries, he joined the board of the Civil Aviation Authority as a technical member. He's a fellow of the American Society of Experimental Test Pilots, the Royal Aeronautical Society, and the Royal Institution of Navigation. There's no one else who can really tell us about developing the Vulcan, magnificent aeroplane. Uh, Tony, could you come and talk to us? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to see so many of you here tonight. The Vulcan was a great aircraft, great deterrent during the Cold War. And of course, it was also a magnificent showstopper at any display. But it just didn't happen. It had to be made to work. And I was very fortunate as being part of the team that made it work. When Chadwick had to respond to the RFP at the end of 46 or 40, um, 46, 47, he decided the only way he could meet the specification was by having a, Vulc a Delta design to keep the span down, to get the CL he wanted, made for a very stiff airplane, which of course was absolutely uh, proved so successful when the deterrent had to go to low level. And of course it was possible with such a large root wing cord to bury the engines and the intake uh, and uh, still have a reasonable thickness cord ratio for the crews. But of course it was a gamble because nobody, there wasn't any powered deltas at that time. Nobody knew what the performance or the handling was going to be like and it was risky. The RAF liked the, his response but they knew it was risky and then of course, unfortunately, he was killed in a Tudor and the chief test pilot when the ailerons were crossed. And so, in order to reduce the risk, we had the third scale models, the 707s. And this is the first one. Avro's always managed to get their aircraft ready just in time for Farnborough. <laughs> and this, this one didn't fly at Farnborough, but I, was I did manage to find a clip which some of you may not have seen. Unfortunately, a few weeks later, the uh, aircraft crashed, uh, killing the pilot, Rick Esler. It didn't have an ejection seat and, of course, no flight data recorder. And Avros said it was a stall due to the 
air brakes being stuck out. I found a secret internal memo in the National Archives, RAE. RAE reckoned that in the adjustment for the controls on before the flight, the errors had become overbalanced. And uh, they evidenced that when the aircraft came back over the airfield before it crashed, the aircraft was going rolling from side to side, very uncertain manner. Of course, we'll never know. So another aircraft was authorized, 707B, which was for only low-speed work. And it did prove that the handling at the stall was acceptable and the lift was available. Unfortunately, there was a lot of buffet off the canopy, and um, so they tried to improve the intake. And here it is flying again with the revised intake, but it was still never really satisfactory. 707 was coming along, 707A was coming along, and Roly Falk had joined. He was obviously a superb pilot and superb demonstration pilot. But I like to show this particular one because he loved, we always used to laugh at him because he loved to fly in his pinstripe suit. <laughs> and Lisa Falk said it's because he said an aircraft should be as clean as a car. I, we, some of us used to think that he used to do it like that because he couldn't be bothered to go down and change. <laughs> but we'll never know. Here's the uh, 707A, and this was a real workhorse. This was the aircraft that discovered all the uh, characteristics of the Delta that was so important. It found out the difficulties, and on the performance side, the drag was excessive and there was buffet at cruise number and above, and on the handling side, it was completely unstable at, uh, at, at the maximum speed longitudinally, so all it wanted to do was to dive, and it had a short period pitching oscillation, which was uncontrollable. And I thought Avros were very brave because they decided that they would solve the problem of the handling with auto-stabilators, artificial stability, which was just becoming available. But of course, the wing... There was no alternative. They had to sort that out. And that's what this aircraft did for several years. It tried vortex generators, wing fences, grounded for power controls. Then they realized they'd have to do something to the outboard uh, leading edge. And they tried more than one idea. But it wasn't until uh, February 1955 that finally the production drawings were released and they were satisfied from the wind tunnels and from 707A that... Um, they had a fix for the production aircraft. In the meantime, of course, they were still, they were making, uh, the production line was rolling without having a fix, which I, again, I thought was rather brave. Just to finish um, this particular airplane, if I may, I had the good fortune to be in Australia earlier this year and uh, was able to see it because the aircraft went out in their, one of their carriers to um, Australia. And I was curious to see if a leading edge was still there. And as you see, it, it, it was. Well, of course, in parallel with the 707A, the prototype started to come along. And this was the first one here at Farnborough. And you'll notice that it has two air brakes underneath per side. That wasn't the production. In production, we had to go down to one because the nose-down trim change was too great with a double one there. I want you to look at this carefully as he rolls down because you'll see the undercarriage fairings were missing. They came off on the first flight and he flew the whole time. 
Well, this aircraft didn't have a Olympus. It had to have Avon engines because the Olympus wasn't ready in time, nor, of course, did it have the, art the artificial stabilization. But there was an awful lot to do on the, all the systems because, of course, systems were coming, the Vogue um, becoming so important yeah, at this time. And I thought we'd have a quick look inside the flight deck. When the aircraft first flew, it had a wheel because all large aircraft had wheels those days. But it's such a small flight deck, it was decided that they would have a stick. And so um, it only had one seat, I should have said, on the first flight. Anyway, it was grounded. It had the stick fitted with the two ejection seats. And, of course, like that, with a throttle so close together and the stick, it was just like a fighter. And, of course, the feel had to be adjusted so it wasn't flown like a fighter. <laughs> but that's another story. The aircraft actually was very advanced in some ways. We talk about electric airplanes. This aircraft was very advanced in that each control surface had its own electrically driven hydraulic motor. We didn't have hydraulic pipes all over the back of the aircraft to work the surfaces. And so uh, it, it meant that the electrics on the aircraft had to be immaculate. 112 volt DC um, was the system. Unfortunately, we lost one aircraft over Detroit in the Air Force. As a result of that, modifications were made. Just under a year later, another, one of our test aircraft, 891, which I've been doing a lot of flying, but luckily for me, I was on holiday. Jimmy Harrison, who unfortunately died a few weeks ago, was flying it, and he had a complete electrical failure. He did a brilliant job. He got all the crew out, co-piloted himself. And the thing was that if the modifications had been done, which were raised as a result of the RAF accidents, it probably would never have happened. Uh, I'm glad to say the rest of the CA fleet, which also hadn't been modified, were rapidly modified before we flew anymore. We had to know, of course, where the control surfaces were. Avro's made this splendid indicator so we could see if there was any warning in the air. We could see exactly what was going on. I think the Concorde had it as well. Copy the idea. The other system we had to sort out was the fuel system. Fourteen tanks all over the aircraft. And I hit on the very good idea of having a sequencer so the tanks were fed in turn with the booster pump switching on just the right amount of time. We could control the CG. Uh, we could check the CG with a uh, slide rule. We could trim the fuel backwards from forward and back. with a. Uh, um, we could transfer the fuel from forward to back to control the CG. As I said, we could work out where the CG was, 14 entries on a slide rule. Um, on the Mark II, luckily, we had a CG indicator. I did find a very n another use for the slide rule, incidentally. When I was flying it occasionally by myself, or I had an inexperienced uh, co-pilot, the slide rule was just long enough and a small flight deck to lean over and push the pressurization switches on <laughs> after takeoff. And for those of you who are worried that on landing it might still have been pressurized, we always had to open the direct vision window to check that the pressure was zero. Well, the second prototype was coming along, VX777. And by this time, we'd built another 707, uh, 707A and 707C. But in fact, they weren't used in the program. The 707A went to BLEU, in fact, where I flew it sometime uh, on auto-throttle development work. And the 707C was, I think, the first aircraft to fly with um, fly-by-wire in the UK. This aircraft, of course, had the Olympus engines, 
and it had the auto stabilizers, so it could start doing the very vital work in parallel with the 707A. But unfortunately, in 1954, the, uh, it was flying along and the rudders jammed on and the aircraft had to be landed with full rudder. And as you can see, it was at Farnborough and it crashed in the overshoot and it was very badly damaged. They got it to the hangar. Now, Sir Roy Dobson was still in charge of Arrows at that time, Dobby, and he realized how important it was to get the aircraft flying again. I think the Victor at that time had lost one at Cranfield doing PE with Flutter. And so the V-bomber program was under review, and Dobby realized how important it was to get it flying. So somehow he inspired the team to get it back in record time, flown undercarriage down back to Woodford, where it was um, repaired, and, of course, the production leading edge was put on, ready for the CA release. Avros were very good at publicity for this very reason. They knew they had to keep the aircraft in front all the time. And this was the year, 55, when Rowley Falk did his famous roles, the first time in public. And uh, he was stopped after a couple of days, so I understand, by, not by the Flying Control Committee, but by the heavy breathers in the SBAC. And I'm sure... Uh, and Rowley had graphs to show that there was no negative G and how safe it was. But we believe, of course, he was egged on by Sir Frederick Handy Page. But Rowley had the, la the last laugh because he flew the Prime Minister, most unusual, Anthony Eden, that same week. The media have got this back to front, but I thought perhaps you might like to see it. If you watch carefully, you can see the Prime Minister waving out of the window just as he taxis out. Like most Farnborough aircraft, I don't think there was much fuel on board. He gets, it, gets airborne fairly smartly. Well, by this time... The aircraft was just about ready for CA release. And this is where actually I come into this, into the program because I was on the RAF acceptance team, uh, for the, for the Vulcan. I couldn't find a Mark 1, um, in plan form. And this is Mark 1A. The difference between a Mark 1A and a Mark 1 was the ECM equipment was put in, in, in the bulbous back end. The Mark 1 had a very pronounced nose down trim change on opening the bottom doors. And for very, brilliant flight uh, development, uh, flight uh, engineer, sorry, um, structural engineer called Bill Staperford, who flew with me a lot, and he worked out exactly how to alter the, uh, the controls as the bomb door opened to minimize this change of trim. And it actually was a very elegant modification. It removed the nose-down change of trim complete, completely. I remember saying to Cyril Bethwaite, I went out to fly this aircraft for the first time, and I said, I hope this back end doesn't upset the, uh, the trim change. He said, nonsense. But of course, you can guess what happened. The, uh, the trim change entirely disappeared when the, uh, with that back end on, and we hastily had to remove the mod. In fact, we, when we did the testing on the aircraft at Boscombe, the modified leading edge did all that was required of it. But of course, the handling was much more demanding, and very fortunately, I have some graphs. Wayson Turner, who was in charge of B-Squad and can't be here tonight, but he made available to me some graphs for the measurements we actually took. And here is the trim curve. And as you can see, I never understand why, but um, with the points going down, the elevator is actually going up. And uh, as we approach one indicated, let me hasten to add, uh, you can see that the aircraft is very unstable. We need more and more up elevator. 
we did the, obviously we did the position error, and it's about one indicated with about 9.3 true. So, Avros had designed the Mac trimmer, which was a strut in series with the elevator control rod. Had an authority of about six and a half degrees of elevator, and I think the, uh, about 12 degrees was the available from the elevator itself. With that six and a half degrees, we could arrange it so that it gave a certain amount of stability. It kept the aircraft stable about the low point nines. We didn't want to make it too stable there because we saved all the, most of the extension of the mark trimmer was used to deter the pilot as we approached nine, eight, and one. But of course, you could still get through it. And then of course you had your hands full. And I say hands even though it was a, a stick, even though it was a stick and not a wheel, because you needed two hands that prevent the aircraft diving, uh, uh, because the aircraft really did want to dive. Uh, uh, and on the Mark II, we went from elevators to elevons, again due to Bill Stabilford, and it was, uh, we had to put a strut in at 150 pounds, stick, equivalent stick force, in series with the feel, so that if you got out of control, and in the dive, and you exerted 150 pounds, you would actually, the strut would crack at a very low rate, and then you could put on what elevon you might have left. And that's what we did. Interestingly, we never had an accident through an aircraft diving out of control, in spite of its handling characteristics. Obviously, a lot of that was due to the Macrum itself. I did some investigation, and on the Mark I, the highest I could find was 104, and that was a Boscombe. They had, for some reason, 21 1,000-pound bombs, 21,000-pound bombs in the bomb bay with the bomb doors open at the corner of the flight envelope, and they lost the place. And so they were diving down. Apparently, they reached a very st steep attitude. They had to put the air brakes out, and the only damage that was done was to the rear bulkhead of the bomb bay. On the Mark II, I did some research, and Air Force aircraft, Akateri doing an air test, and again lost the place, and uh, managed to recover. And the upper wing, the, the upper skin of the wings were very badly creased. But the, otherwise the aircraft was okay. And in fact, um, uh, it was flown back to England and we repaired it a bit as well and flew it again. The, uh, the Court of Inquiry, said the chap had relieved the field. But I suspect they didn't realize that we had this, that obviously they were pulling 150 pounds plus, and they didn't realize, of course, I think the court inquired, that with that strut, of course, you did, in fact, relieve the field. And luckily, with that strut, he was able to rescue the aircraft. This is just a shot. In fact, uh, it's not, it's almost, uh, again, you've got the nose down, uh, you've got the elevator angle going down, and the stick, of course, shown going up there is actually going forward and then you hit one and then you're on your own because you, you, you've got the full instability of the aircraft. Pitch damping really wasn't a problem. Certainly on the Mark I, we had two pitch dampers and the aircraft, in fact, did not go unstable in the short period of pitch, uh, pitching oscillation. But of course, you don't get something for nothing on these auto-stabilizers. You've got to do the malfunctions. And there was no problem on the pitch damper and a yaw damper we put on later as well because 
um, their authority was small, and you could stand the full deflection at 450 knots, and the aircraft structure could take it. But of course, you couldn't do that on the Mach trimmer, because with six and a half degrees, if the pilot did nothing, the aircraft would be broken. And so we had a 1.7 G cutout and a 0.7 G cutout for the run-in. Uh, in case, the, obviously, if the pilot caught it, he could uh, he could match it. But if he did, was doing nothing, those G switches worked. We did the testing of that on treble seven. We couldn't do it on 889 because um, we didn't have the right instrumentation. And I think Avros must have got to know me then, because um, the statistic I always remember was on March the 26th. Uh, I did my first flight in the Vulcan, and on August the 1st, I'd left the Air Force and was an Avro test pilot. I, I didn't know the, Avro, uh, the RAF could work so fast, but my friends tell me they weren't going to miss a good opportunity like that. <laughs> now then, the view of the Vulcan was very poor. I deliberately chose that bad picture to emphasize the point. Um, you've got used to it. Calvert, I went to a lecture by Calvert, uh, the authority on these things at test pilot school, and he told us all the things you needed to be able to land in bad weather. The Vulcan didn't have any of those. <laughs> and, of course, I'm afraid it was probably a contributing factor to that terrible accident at London Airport at the end of the, the first RAF aircraft on the world tour. More complicated, of course, but I'm sure the view was, a, was one of the factors. Landing the Vulcan was always interesting. If you came in a bit fast, there was a ground effect, I expect, like a lot of aircraft. Enormous parachute. But that wasn't the way to land the aircraft, of course. The way to land the aircraft was not to let it touch down and keep on pulling back and back and back. And the nose would go up and up. And, of course, the runway would tend to disappear. And um, people couldn't believe, who hadn't seen it done, how high the eye was above the runway when the wing finally gave out on the lift and the rear boat is touched uh, on, on the runway and of course the drag was enormous and uh, you could have very good control of the nose wheel in fact one of my party tricks was to go up the short runway with the nose wheel still in the air that's one of the things I liked about the Vulcan um, that you didn't have to use the brakes for landing unlike our competitor of course the Victor now the engine's wing developed all the time and um, we started at 11,000 13,000, the mark, that wing modification worked, but the engine was developed up to 21,000 pounds, and there was no way the modification that was done to the leading edge on the Mark I would, could, it just wouldn't be good enough at the high CLs and altitudes the aircraft was flying. So the Mark II, um, Mark II wing, um, w was developed. And we developed the, the wing handling, on the and the performance on uh, on on the long suffering second prototype treble seven, the engines we did on eight nine one, the Olympus engines, the electrics of course with two hundred volts constant frequency AC, with a rat, and a APU, and we didn't have the, the electrics were very good on the, on the Mark two. There only one accident on the electrics, and it wasn't due to the uh, bad time the electrics of the a manufacturing problem in the Rat Bay. And then the auto landings. The aircraft was designed to have auto landings. The flight deck really was the same as a Mark I, except it had a flight system. Smith had a military flight system, and for some reason, 
best known to Smith and nobody else, they decided to have a moving pointer and not a moving card. So you never knew which way you were going. You kept on having to rotate the card to get the pointer flying up the other. We, we didn't like it very much. I suppose it was all right on an airline because they were, they, the Smith flight system was the same. I think they had it on the Vanguard and the Comet. And if you were flying on a steady course, it wasn't too bad. But for us, it was absolutely a nightmare because we kept on having to turn the card around. And the other problem with the flight system was the glide slope, was, was flying the glide slope. Because Smith's idea was you put the attitude pointer over the glide slope pointer and you would just fly the glide slope. But of course, with a conical, a conical beam, it meant that the gearing became tighter and tighter. In the case of the Vulcan, it would go unstable before you got to the decision height. So um, I suppose probably as a result of that, Smith didn't do too well here on, on the flight system market. I mentioned auto landing. And uh, there's the military flight system. Auto throttle. Uh, just this is a BLE, blind landing experimental unit, BLEU, with the experts. And the amazing thing was that when we got the auto throttle on the Vulcan, designed by BLEU, the only sensor was speed error. And of course, it was quite hopeless because you had to have some phase advance. You had to have a pitch sensor so that when you pulled the stick, when you altered the pitch, you knew you had to open the throttle straight away, particularly as it's such a lag compared with a piston engine. And what I think upset us, or me, if you like, was that, I, that really you argued with us, and we had to play around with different pitot-static systems until they finally gave in, and Smiths, of course, were ready, and they gave us a, a, a pitch rate gyro, and then the thing worked beautifully. The other thing with BLU, which always amazed me, was that they decided you couldn't land on a, on a, on a runway uh, just using a localizer. You had to have more accurate uh, steering. And so they devised a leader cable, which to install meant digging up all the approach lighting and all alongside the runway, and you had an offset localizer. The thing worked beautifully, but of course it was a terrible waste of money and probably was responsible why, the, uh, in the end, it, it didn't go into production on the Mark II. The only problem we did have on automatic landing was the longitudinal dispersion, because I mentioned the float on the Vulcan, if you came in a bit fast, the autopilot wasn't able to cope with it going a bit slowly, and so in the end we, we scratched our heads a bit about that. Then I realized what was, I suppose, should have been obvious, that we had to vary the approach speed with the wind speed, and if we varied one knot of approach speed with four knots of headwind component, it got rid of our longitudinal dispersion, and the thing was beautiful, and we sent it down to Boscombe Down, and the program was cancelled. Another interesting program, of course, was Skybolt. 15,000 pounds um, aside, the aircraft had to be modified um, to take it, which, of course, proved invaluable in the years ahead for the low-level deterrent, because the, though Skybolt was cancelled, uh, the modifications were used um, through the years to make the aircraft stronger and have the fatigue life that was required and, of course, it proved very handy in Blackbuck, as we all know, um, for supporting the, the jammer and the sensor um, on the pickup points there. You wouldn't know, when you flew Skyboat, you wouldn't know that, um, that they were there until you landed. Enormous fences they acted as. The aircraft just didn't want to touch down. If you landed it, if you tried to touch down the normal way, it would float and float and float. The way to do it was to land, as I described earlier, as long as you prevented the aircraft touchdown, the drag would go up, and then it was fine. But um, 
uh, it, it had the biggest ground effect I've ever handled. We used to drop them, the inert dummies, and so we had to fly with one, and so we had to do some testing with one. I remember the briefing very well um, from our chief aeronautics and his team. He said, no worries at all. Um, you'll barely notice it there. So we tacked it out for takeoff with our 84,000 pounds of thrust and probably half fuel weight. And I opened the throttles and off we went. And the aircraft just wanted to leave the runway straight away to the sing- towards the single missile. And I used an enormous amount of brake, the nose was steering, and full rudder and drag it into the air. And all of a sudden, of course, it was just like they said, it was no problem at all. And uh, certainly the chief aerodynamicist should have better, known better, and so should I, the inertia effect of one fifteen thousand pounds on one side was absolutely enormous and uh, shows how careful you've got to be. Unusually, as a civil pilot, I was allowed to take a military pilot overseas and I couldn't resist showing this aircraft. Uh, this uh, at Edwards, where we were doing some radio tests on Skybolt before it was cancelled. And, of course, they wanted to fly our, our aircraft. We wanted to fly theirs. And uh, I'm showing you this shot because I, the B-47, I'm rather proud of flying that. And that, of course, was the start of the Boeing commercial airplane program. We, of course, made blue steel at Avros, and we, so we did the testing on that and the... Uh, and, uh, of course, the trials were done at in Australia. And again, I was lucky because I ferried the production Mark II to do the CA release trials out to Australia. And uh, they wouldn't give me any spares for some reason. I said, it's ridiculous. I've got to have something. And I managed to persuade them to give me a set of wheels and a parachute. And when we got to Gand, we did have a puncture and the RAF are wonderful, no jacks, but as you see, they, uh, they towed it backwards. And the best thing they did on, on this, I don't know whether you can see, they put this bit of wood there, which was saved the day, because when they towed the aircraft backwards up the ramp, it hit that bit of wood, that wheel, and it carried the whole thing along for several yards. And if that bit of wood hadn't have been there, obviously the wheel would have gone over the ramp, and I don't know how much damage would have been done. We were, uh, and that was very, very fortunate. Well, I don't think any talk about the Vulcan would be complete with talking, except without talking about demonstrating it. As I said, it's a wonderful aircraft to demonstrate. This aircraft had the um, 64,000 pounds of thrust Mark I. We were developing the engine, as I said, for the Mark II. And uh, we reckoned, this was 1958, we, uh, I reckoned I could do uh, two rolls off the top from a standing start. That's me and the grey one over there. This was the first production Mark II that Jimmy was flying. Right, so on the pull-up, it was 3G. 270 knots we started the pull-up, I should have said. 3G on the way round. On the top, 150 knots. The aircraft doesn't roll very well at 150 knots, but with full rudder and aileron it helps. And then we went down for another one and landed. 3 minutes and 19 seconds. It's a good way to spend a week. I was very pleased with myself as you can imagine when I was first flying at Farnborough so I decided not to have lunch in the pilot's tent but to have lunch in the firm's chalet and I saw Jimmy Kay our managing director rushing over towards me I had no doubt what he was going to say he said to me 
hurry up your hurry up with your lunch. We need your table. <laughs> Very good for me. The at the uh, when it was uh, as I left the public relations officer came up to me and said the secretaries want to fly in the back and I said well that must be mad to want to do that and uh, anyway I agreed and so every morning we would brief them and they would fly in the afternoon and they absolutely loved it were fully booked Margaret came down the weekend and she did her trip in the back and then uh, she didn't go back by train. She came back with me in the right-hand seat. She was the first lady in the right-hand seat. And let me say that the side rule came in very handy on that occasion. <laughs> Unfortunately, our aerobatics came to a, an end because this, this aircraft, the first prototype at Sarston, broke up doing a, an air display. They said it was because the pilot was flying too fast based on an amateur movie. Um, I happen to know the pilot. He was on my flight in Germany, actually. I don't believe in flying too fast. I believe that aircraft was damaged before he ever took off because I discovered that the aircraft was doing aerobatics all the time. They were doing intensive flying on the Conway engine for the Mark II. They were doing rolls off the top, rolls, and I discovered amazingly they'd even done something we'd never done, which was a loop. At Woodford, we had a small man after we'd been flying who always used to crawl up the leading edge to see how the leading edges were and would repair them if necessary. I'm absolutely convinced that aircraft was damaged before the pilot took off. And this is this terrible picture where you can see the leading edge coming off. I must declare an interest in the 558 because I did the production schedule and it was actually the first, as Robert's going to tell you, it was actually the first aircraft um, for the RAF, amazingly, um, and I delivered it to Waddington, and it came back for its Skybolt mods, which we did. So, thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you very much for a super talk about the aeroplane, technical on the development problems, and a wonderful description of displaying it. Absolutely magnificent piece. Um, we'll have a discussion on Tony's presentation. Um, one in front, please. Uh, John Hazelwood. I remember in 1960, uh, to an air show at Waddington, the Vulcan doing a full aerobatic display, followed by the opposition, in your terms, the victor doing the same. And it was a very, well, very memorable display. But you said it was banned in... In the CA fleet, we were stopped oh, doing it. Oh, yes. Uh, um, I, I don't know what uh, the RAF... Uh, well, I'm surprised the RAF did aerobatics, but uh, yeah. um, it, I, I would have thought it would have been uh, off limits, <coughs> but obviously they did do it. I remember it very clearly because there was the Vulcan followed by the Victor followed by the Lightning which wasn't in service then and then to top it all there was a, a Wessex that came in and did the loop the loop which was very uh, memorable. Well all I would say is that um, we were allowed 3G 
and that was a great dispensation to be allowed to pull 3G in a Vulcan. Um, but the normal limit, I remember, serves me right, is 2.4. Obviously, we were, we were very lightweight. Um, so we reckoned, but you had to be careful. And I told you, occasionally, um, the leading edge would get, would get buckled and uh, had to be repaired. And that wasn't listed down in one of the approved maintenance procedures, I don't think. <laughs> Christopher. This is not very clear. I think this will happen. That, uh, the very first flight, uh, a display flight, uh, was over the factory in Middleton, Manche- uh, Middleton, Manchester, when Rowley Falk brought it back from Woodford to, because the p- people never saw the finished aeroplane uh, at uh, Middleton, Manchester, um, he brought the Volvo come back to demonstrate what they, to show them what they'd made. And uh, it was quite a hectic display. And I can remember the aircraft diving down on the factory and then pulling up. And I believe that the protests uh, across Oldham, people thought the, uh, apparently, uh, to the police, people thought the, uh, we were actually being invaded. <laughs> I was once had a brush with the police when I was practicing for SPHC, so I may say. Um, yes, I think but the, the point I perhaps didn't make very well was the thing that put the airplane on the map for the British public was when he rolled at SPAC, because though I think he had been rolling uh, at Woodford or, or and where else, the, um, the first time he'd done it in public, I think I'm right in saying, was in 1955 um, there, and, and that's what got everybody's attention, I think. Um, Chris? I seem to remember at Farnborough one year, the rocket-assisted takeoff of the Balkan. What happened to that? I... Uh, You've left me there. I oh, can't. good heavens. I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm sh- sure. Yeah, the Valiant. Uh, the Valiant had rockets that didn't take off, yes. but I didn't know the Vulcans. Well, going on with a comparison to Concord, when you were about in the, in the landing attitude and you wanted to pitch up, did you lose lift with continual back pressure on the other ones? Oh, yes. I mean, it was that was Splendid aircraft, and that was why I, I think I used to like it so much. I mean, uh, because it was so, so delightful to land. You had full control all the time as you came up and up, more and more up elevator. As I said the wing finally gave up in the... And it, without auto-stabilization, was it? Excuse not, me? If you had no auto-stabilization... Well, you didn't need anything at all. I mean, you, it, was just, it was just the way the, the Vulcan was. It was a, a super, absolutely delightful aircraft to land like that. And increasing drag with decreasing speed. Yes, oh, the um, the spe- it was speed stable on the approach, unlike the Concorde. Yeah. Um, but of course, the way I'm describing the landing, you didn't have any power on anyway. And some of us before touchdown used to chop the one and four engines as well. <laughs> Good heavens! <laughs> I think one at the back. I can uh, corroborate on the um, Raytog. Uh, the early Mark uh, IIs that I flew were fitted out with Ray Tog in that there was a small next to the undercarriage button and it was firmly wire-locked. <laughs> we were not allowed to use it. But uh, interestingly, I think, uh, again, you mentioned the um, uh, auto land. Uh, we used to pick the Mark IIs up from, uh, wo- from Woodford and... Uh, use the uh, auto throttles uh, on our landing back at Scampton and thereafter the fuses were taken out and it was far, it was never used again 
It was a really excellent auto throttle. And I'm sorry about the radar you've told me about because I'm just, if I may plug a book which is just about, which I've written, which is just about to be uh, available in two or three weeks. I haven't mentioned it there, so I feel I've missed something. <laughs> uh, I joined Avro's uh, straight from university in 1950. And the first thing I saw on an interview of all things, that's what security was in those days, I saw the Vulcan mock-up, wooden mock-up, uh, which was terribly exciting, of course, because it was unknown uh, publicly. And I was present at the first flight. Uh, I joined the design office, and I had to work on detailed design. But on the Friday evening, it did its... Supposedly, it was going to be its first flight. I'm sure that you will remember this, Tony. Um, it did a taxi run instead. But that, for me, was a tremendous evening because I had an ancient, even then ancient, BSA tour. And I'd parked it, uh, unfortunately, rather close to the ferry track. And suddenly I found the Vulcan started up his engines, and he was heading straight for me. I was in the car, and it would have hit, there's no doubt, the undercarriage would have hit. And I desperately tried to start the car, and it wouldn't start, of course. And at the last minute, it started, and I just turned away and uh, missed a terrible incident. But the next morning, on the Saturday morning, uh, it did fly. And I witnessed that undercarriage door falling off uh, and falling like a falling leaf in the fields about three or four miles from the airfield. Uh, I stayed with the Falcon Design Office until 55, and then I went to the newly formed uh, division to design and develop Blue Steel. Now, Blue Steel, you did at least mention thank you, because it had very, very little publicity. Uh, it really was the size of a small fighter aircraft. Uh, Rod Kirkby is the name. Uh, I was fascinated by the strength of the nose-down uh, moment at high mark numbers. Uh, when John Derry's de Havilland 108 pitched over uh, accidentally almost in, uh, in his supersonic flight, I fondly imagine that was partially due to aeroelastic distortion of the the tailless configuration. But in this case, presumably the Vulcan was plenty rigid enough for that not to be the case. It was just just an aerodynamic quirk of the uh, even of the delta wing. I suppose so. The um, if I may just mention, those, I don't know whether you saw the sound barrier, but John Justin of the sound barrier decided he would go supersonic. He had a, a fighter airplane. And uh, the, the way he went supersonic was just at a critical moment with his nose-down trim change. He pushed the stick forward, and the aircraft recovered. And I thought that was great for Pinewood Studios. <laughs> we didn't like that ourselves. We never tried it. Thank you. I should say, by the way, as far as I know, the Vulcan never went supersonic. Our great competitor, the Victor, did. But uh, the, the Vulcan didn't because of this terrible, oh, this large, if you like, out-of-control nose-down trim change. Could I ask them, in, I think it's in Vulcan 607 book, 
it's stated that in the very early design, the Vulcan was intended to have a single pilot, like the Lancaster, which is why the cockpit is so small. Does anyone, do you or anyone else know if there's any truth in that? I, I don't know. I, I have no idea, I'm afraid. I the answer that question if you like. It was hmm. originally designed as a tandem cockpit. Oh. <laughs> the escape system on the Vulcan, given the problems you had uh, bringing the aircraft into production, how, how, why did you uh, adopt that system? And then subsequently, with the limitations of that design, why wasn't ejection fit, uh, seats fitted on the rear seats? Ah. Well, that's a very complicated story, and I don't feel I'm an authority on that, but all sorts of schemes were tried out, and uh, I think they have been written up uh, at length in quite a few books, but I'm afraid I don't know the full history of that. Obviously, uh, you remember the time of the, uh, those of you who can remember, the time of that accident at London Airport, of course, that was a, a great talking point of why weren't they ejection seats in the rear of the airplane? And, um, but, and, and of course, people agonized. I suppose the trouble was it, was too difficult to do at the time, and um, it, it was you know that, that was it, that was the um, that was it really. And uh, there were lots of schemes I know, but nothing was ever authorised. Yeah, and the situation was the same on the other two V bombers. None of the navigators had jet seats. May I just make a comment on that? My name's Rod Powell. I've had a lot of experience with flying in the back of a Vulcan, and uh, was one of those poor souls who had to live with the fact that we couldn't get out other than jump out. Um, but uh, we were told that the reason we didn't have ejection seats was because the raised floor on which we sat was not strong enough to take the reaction loads of the ejection seats. And moreover, I think there were some trials done at one stage where the three seats across the back, the middle seat went out first and the other two canted over side to side and went out. But it probably took quite a long time to get that sequence to work. And it was all deemed too expensive, and perhaps we were not worth it in the end, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and one other thing, if I could just say, going back to where we talk about uh, the rocket-assisted takeoff, and someone back there mentioned there was a switch on the in the front cockpit. It was, I think I recall it being called the takeoff cruise selector, and that's because we had two types of engines in the service Mark IIs, the 2.0 engines, which were... 17,000 pounds thrust each or something like that. And the 301 engines, which were 20,000 pounds thrust each. And then, so the pilots didn't have to get used to different levels of thrust on a day by day basis. The others were derated back to the 201 level. So all aircraft were about 17,000 pounds thrust each on each engine. And the takeoff crew selector, if you broke the wire and put it forward, you got an instant 12,000 pounds of thrust, which people occasionally did do, but uh, I think was not not encouraged by the powers of be. I think in my memory, right, we did have a switch for controlling them, but that was on regular. That was on the engines. There wasn't any nothing to do with the rockets, of course. That was that was just the engines. Thank you, Chairman. Might I ask, Mr. Blackman, what sort of pressures in the early 1950s would there have been on test flying? as a result of three or four manufacturers making four-engine bombers, uh, Vickers, uh, Handley Page, and Avro, and to a lesser extent, Short, 
uh, did this impact on the uh, amount of test flying and the, uh, and the attitudes of the pilots and the companies very much? Not sure I'm quite with you on that one. I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you. There were four, 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 yeah, yeah, four yeah. companies were making it, and, and obviously this was a free market in a sense compared with today where you have um, uh, more or less one manufacturer for any one object. Um, and uh, this would have, one would suppose, engendered a, uh, something of a, of a competitive spirit between the uh, four oh. companies involved. Thank well, you, Chair. A real competition, of course, was between, what well, I like to think, was between Handley Page and, uh, <laughs> and, and Avros. I mean, that was, we, we were always competing the whole time. And uh, I, mean, I could go on for hours to, uh, about that. The Valiant, of course, was an earlier was slightly a, a, yeah. an earlier technology, if you like. Yes. The, the real head-to-head -head was, was was the victor, and the, and uh, we were always competing. <laughs> you better not me get I better not get me going on that. <laughs> so, thank you, Chairman. I think that's probably a good point to wind up. But I thank you again, Tony, for the super lecture. Thank you.